Chapter 17, Sections 5 and 6 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 17, The Principate of Nero, 54-68 to A.D., Sections 5 and 6. Section 5. The Revolt of Vindex and Fall of Nero The events which led to the fall of Nero began in Gaul, although it was not from Gaul that the final blow was to come. See Julius Vindex, sprung of a noble Celtic family, but thoroughly Romanized and adopted into the imperial gens, was governor of Gallia Lugudunensis. At the beginning of 68 AD, he raised the standard of revolt. It is not quite clear what his ultimate intentions were, but he seems to have conceived the idea of a kingdom of Gaul, ruled by himself, nominally perhaps dependent on the empire, like the former kingdom of Mauritania. But it was practically an attempt to throw off the Roman yoke. Vindex may be regarded as a successor of Vercingetorix and Sacrovir. He collected from various parts of Gaul a force of about 100,000 men. The districts of the Arverni and the Sequani joined in the movement, and the town of Vienna on the Rhone was a sort of center for the rebellion. But Lugadunum, the capital of the three provinces, held aloof, as did the Lingones and the Treveri on the borders of Germany. The troops which Vindex gathered were ill-disciplined and ill-armed. The enterprise was hopeless unless he could induce some of the western armies to take part in it. His attempts to win the armies of the Rhine were fruitless, but he was more successful in hither Spain. We have already met Galba, the governor of that province. He had distinguished himself slightly both on the Rhine and in Africa. He was already in his seventy-third year, and in his childhood had seen Augustus, who had said to him, according to report, quote, Thou shalt one day taste our empire. End quote. It is probable that Galba had already thought of rebellion before he received the overtures from Vindex. Oracles were afloat that an emperor was to arise from Spain. The revolt of Vindex and the pressure of his lieutenant, T. Vinius, decided the old man, and as he belonged to the senatorial party, his declaration of rebellion took the form of declaring himself to be the servant of the Senate. After considerable hesitation, on April 2nd, he named himself the Legatus Senatus Populic Romani in a speech delivered from his tribunal, and made preparations for war. In Spain he was supported by Otho, legatus of Lusitania, and Cecina, quaestor of Baetica, but their adherence was of little consequence if the legions of the Rhine and Clodius Macer, governor of Africa, held aloof. In the meantime the issue of the revolt of Vindex had been decided. When the news was brought, Nero returned to Rome and took measures for its suppression. Those troops, which were already on their march from Germany and Britain to prosecute a war against the Sarmatians, received orders to return. But the quelling of the rebellion was due to Virginus Rufus, the legatus of Upper Germany, who resisted all the endeavors of Vindex to gain him over. Alarmed by the national character of the movement, Virginius advanced with his own legions, reinforced by a division from the lower province, to Vesontio, which was threatened by the Gallic militia of the rebel. Vesontio, whose name has become Vesanson, was a very important place, for at it the roads from lower Germany and northwestern Gaul, from the Rhine and from the Jura Mountains, met. 
Here a great battle took place. The legions were completely victorious, and Vindex was slain. It was not loyalty to Nero that had influenced the Germanic army to repel the advances of Vindex. It was rather the Gallic character of the revolt. This is shown by the fact that after the victory, they proclaimed their general imperator, but he resisted the temptation. He was a man of lowly birth, and perhaps thought he had no chance of being accepted by the nobility of Rome. In the inscription for his tomb, which he composed before his death, he mentions as the two creditable actions of his life the victory over Vindex and his refusal of the empire. After the failure of the revolt in Gaul, the situation of Galba seemed hopeless, and he despaired himself. But he was saved by the emperor's want of resolution and the treachery of the ministers. When the news of the defection in Spain arrived in Rome, Nero confiscated Galba's property and himself assumed the consulship. He made preparations for an expedition against Galba and appointed Petronius Turpiolanus as the commander. A new legion was organized from the troops of the fleet and called Legio Classica. But the Praetorian guards, who were devoted to the Julian house, seemed to have remained quietly in their camp, instead of taking the field as we should have expected. The prefect Tigellinus vanishes from the scene and plays no part in the catastrophe of his master. His fall was probably due to the intrigues of Nymphidius Sabinus, the other prefect, who nominally embraced the cause of Galba, but was really aiming at securing the empire for himself. If Nero had not utterly lost his head, he was secure in the loyalty of the Praetorian guards, notwithstanding the aspirations of the prefect. But he was a coward, and his irresolution drove his supporters away. Dull dissatisfaction prevailed in Rome. Corn was dear, and when a ship arrived from Egypt, which proved to be laden not with corn but with sand for the emperor's arena, the discontent became acute. It was reported that Nero entertained the idea of abandoning Rome and sailing to Alexandria to make that city the capital of an eastern empire, the idea which Antonius had almost realized. The Senate was naturally eager to overthrow the tyrant, who hated it, in favor of Galba, but feared to compromise itself until the Praetorian guards had declared themselves. In order to draw them from their devotion to Nero, Nymphidius resorted to an artifice. He persuaded the emperor, who was distracted with fear, to repair from the palace to the Servilian gardens, which lay close to the Tiber on the road to Ostia. He then went to the camp and informed the soldiers that Nero had deserted them and left Rome. They were easily convinced that it was their interest to support Galba, and the wily prefect promised them in Galba's name a donative of thirty thousand satyrses each. He knew that Galba would never fulfill the promise, and he hoped by means of the consequent dissatisfaction to secure his own ends. Meanwhile, in the Servilian gardens, the emperor was devising counsels of despair. He was gradually deserted by his courtiers and most of his slaves and freedmen, and the praetorian cohort, which was keeping guard at the palace, left its post at midnight. At length he determined to flee from Rome, but could induce no friend to share his danger except a few freedmen. One officer scornfully quoted Virgil, Is it so hard to die? One of the imperial freedmen, named Phaon, offered his master the refuge of a villa about four miles northeast of Rome, on the Via Patinaria, a crossroad connecting the Via Salaria and the Via Nomentana. Thither he started by night, accompanied by Phaon, Epaphroditus, and two other freedmen. 
the historians have not failed to invest the night ride and the last scene of Nero's life with dramatic coloring. The Via Nomentana went close to the Praetorian camp, and shouts in honor of Galba reached the ears of the fugitives as they passed. The night was wild with lightning and earthquakes. Nero crept into the villa by a narrow entrance at the back, in order not to arouse the suspicions of the slaves. There he lay on straw for hours, unable to make up his mind to die. What an artist I am to perish, he said. But when a slave of Phaon arrived with the news that the Senate had condemned him to death more maiorum, and that he was being sought for everywhere, he made up his mind to escape a cruel execution. The tramp of horses' feet was heard in the distance when he pressed a dagger to his throat, and it was driven home by Epaphroditus. As he was dying, a centurion entered, and pretended that he had come to help him. Too late, that was fidelity indeed, were Nero's last words. He perished on June 9, 68 A.D., his body was burnt, and the ashes were buried honorably in the sepulchre of the Domitian gens on the Pincian Hill. At first the tidings of his fall caused universal joy. The Senate, who, as soon as the decision of the Praetorian guards was known, had hastened to sentence him to a punishment which was almost obsolete, condemned his memory and ordered his statues to be overthrown. The intense hatred which the senatorial party felt towards Nero is most clearly seen in literature but among the mass of the people a reaction soon set in. Many people doubted the reality of his death and looked for his reappearance, and under succeeding emperors three false Neros arose and obtained a following. King Vologeses of Parthia sent an embassy requesting the Senate and the new princeps to hold the memory of Nero in honor. Christians saw in Nero the Antichrist and thought that as such he would come again. Nero was the last of the true Caesars, the last, we may say, of the Julian line. Strictly he belonged by adoption to the Claudii, yet the Claudian and Julian houses had been so closely connected since the union of Augustus with Livia that politically little distinction was made between them. Nero was not only the adopted son of Claudius, he was also, through his mother, the great-great-grandson of Augustus and the grandson of Germanicus, who belonged by adoption to the Julian gens. Thus it was felt, when Nero perished without an heir, that the line of the great dictator had come to an end, and a new epoch was beginning. The features of Nero were handsome, but his expression was not pleasant. His face wore a sort of scowl, perhaps due to his defective sight. His body was ill-made, he had a prominent stomach and thin legs. In his later years his skin was blotched from excesses, but his health was good. As a professional singer, he was very careful about his voice. His effeminacy was shown in the arrangement of his hair, and in the looseness of the cincture which bound his dress when he appeared in public. His capricious tyranny recalls, in many respects, the extravagances of Gaius. Like Gaius, he was a lover of the incredible. But while the mad Gaius had almost a genius for devising absurdities on a colossal scale, Nero was merely extravagant on the beaten tracks of luxury. He gave immense presents to his favorites, and tried to outdo his predecessors in the spaciousness of his buildings. He projected a canal from Puteoli to Rome, as well as the cutting of the isthmus. He did not aspire to divinity like Gaius, but rather at being preeminent among men and receiving their admiration. He was vain rather than proud. He adopted superstitions from the east and practiced magic. 
In his later years, the senators seemed to have kept quite aloof from his court, and he hated them cordially. No flattery pleased him more than when a courtier said, I hate you, Nero, because you are a senator. Section 6. Nero's Administration The peculiarity of Nero's principate was that it was marked by good government under a bad emperor. Nero himself was devoid of political insight and spent no care on the administration. Yet in general policy and in the conduct of military affairs, there is little to blame, if there is little to praise, in his government in the early years of his reign. This was not due to the princeps. It was partly due to well-trained ministers, to Seneca and Burrus especially, but it was also due to the excellence of the machine which Caesar the dictator and Augustus had set going. It is perhaps as well that the political views of the ministers were strictly limited by the system of Augustus. They did not introduce any new idea into the government. It was a more serious defect that their activity was mainly confined to the interests of the capital they concerned themselves less with the welfare of the provinces. It must be admitted, however, that they appointed able officers to the commands on the frontiers. The revival of the power of the Senate in Nero's early years has been already noticed. In 56 AD, the management of the Aurarium was transferred from the quaestors to two prefects of praetorian standing, who were to be appointed by the emperor and hold office for three years. This perhaps served to give the emperor more control over the money which the fisc advanced to the aurarium. In the same year the tribunes were deprived of their rights of intercession and inflicting fines. It was probably in this reign that the independence of the senate was diminished by the emperor's extension of the right of condemnation to the consulate, which had hitherto been exempted from this influence. But the most serious aggression of Nero against the senate was his appropriation of the right of issuing copper coinage, which had hitherto been reserved for the Senate. He also entertained the idea of abolishing the senatorial privilege of holding the high commands in the provinces and armies, in fact of abolishing the Senate altogether, and carrying on the business of the state by means of the knights and freedmen. In the field of civil legislation, several useful measures were passed, among which may be mentioned that which forbade the exhibitions of gladiators and beasts in the provinces. In provincial administration, the reign of Nero was marked by numerous processes for extortion, both in senatorial and in imperial provinces, instituted by the subjects against their governors. Cestius Proculus, accused by the Cretans, was acquitted. P. Seller, proconsul of Asia, died before his case was decided. Tarquitius Priscus, accused by Bithynia, was condemned, and Petius Blasus, accused by Cyrenaica, was degraded from the Senate. In the imperial provinces, Cosutianus Capito was prosecuted by Cilicia and condemned but pardoned by Nero, owing to the influence of his father-in-law Tigellinus. Sardinia accused Vispanius Lenus and obtained his condemnation but Eprius Marcellus, accused by Lycia, was acquitted. Some of these processes came before the Senate, others before the Emperor. In 57 AD an edict was issued, forbidding provincial governors and procurators to exhibit spectacles. Many had been in the habit of doing this, in order to reconcile the people to their unjust administration. These facts prove that the subjects were still exposed to injustice from their governors, and also that under Nero they were encouraged to complain. A new procuratorial province was created, 
Pontus Polemoniacus, and Alpes Cotier was placed under procurators. The districts of the Cotian and Maritime Alps had been Romanized since their pacification under Augustus, and now received the Ius Latinum. Possibly the Pennine Alps also became a procuratorial province as early as Nero. The preservation of the Latin nationality occupied the serious attention of the government. New blood was imported into Italy from the provinces, and a considerable number of towns were colonized, including Antium, Beneventum, Capua, Tarentum, Nuceria, Puteoli. The process of Roman civilization in Spain is shown by the fact that the three legions placed there by Augustus were reduced under Nero to two. It has been already mentioned that Nero gave the Greeks their freedom. As this act deprived the Senate of a province, he made up the loss to the Aurarium by transferring to the Senate the imperial province of Sardinia and Corsica. In the middle of Nero's reign, an important colonization took place in an important colonization took place in Moesia, which was constantly threatened by invasions of barbarians from the north and seems to have suffered from depopulation. The legatus Tiberius Plautius Silvanus Aelianus settled 100,000 inhabitants of the land beyond the Danube in the Moesian territory. They were obliged to pay a certain tribute, and also doubtless to perform military service in case of need. He also extended the sphere of the Roman influence on the north shore of the Euxine by annexing to the empire the town of Liras. The advance of Roman arms in Britain has already been related. The war for Armenia and the rebellion in Judea will be described in subsequent chapters. The project of an overland water route from the Mediterranean to the North Sea was proposed by Lucius Vetus, the legatus of Upper Germany, 55 to 56 AD. It was merely required to cut a canal connecting the Arar, the Seon, with the Mosella. Thus ships might sail up the Rhone, turn into the Arar at Lagudunum, reach the Mosella by the projected channel, and descend the Mosella into the Rhine. But the jealousy of Aelius Gracilis, the legatus of Belgica, frustrated the execution of this plan, which would have necessitated the bringing of the legions of Germany into Belgica. Gracilis frightened Vetus by suggesting that the emperor would be annoyed at the undertaking of such a large work by a subject. In the lower province, some trouble was caused by the eastern Frisians, who were independent, whereas the western Frisians were tributary. Emboldened by the long peace, they migrated with all their people to the bank of the old Rhine and established themselves in unoccupied lands reserved for pasturing the beasts, which supplied the Roman troops with food. Their leaders, we cannot properly speak of kings, were Veritas and Malarix. They had built their houses, sowed the fields, and were using the soil as their own, when the legatus Dubius Avitus threatened to attack them unless they either returned to their old abodes or obtained from the emperor a grant of land. Veritas and Malarix preferred the second alternative, and went themselves to Rome to beg Caesar for the boon. They were obliged to wait some days on Nero's pleasure, and spent the time in seeing the sights of Rome. They were shown Pompey's theatre, in order that they might apprehend the greatness of the people. They took their seats among the general public, and as they could not appreciate the entertainment, they asked questions about the places assigned to the various ranks, the fourteen benches of the knights and the orchestra where the senators sat. Observing some persons in foreign dress among the senators, and learning that they were the envoys of nations, who were distinguished by their bravery and friendship to Rome, 
they exclaimed that the Germans were excelled by none in valor or loyalty, and took their seats among the senators. The incident was good-naturedly received by the spectators, who regarded it as an example of old-fashioned impulsiveness. The result of the embassy was that the two chieftains received Roman citizenship, but their nation was commanded to evacuate the territory which they had occupied. They refused to obey, and it was necessary for some auxiliary cavalry to drive them out. But no sooner were the Frisians ejected than the same lands were seized by another and more powerful people, the Amsivari, who lived in the neighborhood of the Amesia and were driven out of their territory by the Chausi. The cause of these homeless exiles, seeking a new habitation, was pleaded by Boiocalus, an old man who was influential among these nations and loyal to Rome. On the occasion of the Cheruscan revolt in the disastrous year 9 AD, he had been imprisoned by Armenius, and had since then served under Tiberius and Germanicus. But Avitus refused to accede to the request, and the Amservarians called on the Bructeri, Tencteri, and other tribes to help them to take by force what the Romans refused to give. Avitus sent a message to Cotilius Mancia, who had succeeded Vetus as legatus of Upper Germany, requesting him to make a hostile demonstration beyond the Rhine, and he himself promptly invaded the land of the Tencteri, and threatened to exterminate them if they associated themselves with the Amsavarians. The Bructeri were scared in the same way, and the Amsavarians were then isolated and forced to retreat. Wandering as outcasts from one territory to another, received now as friends and now as foes, their entire youth was finally slain, and those who could not fight were divided as booty. End of chapter 17